So if we hear some grunts and groans, we'll know the source of that pain. It's good to be with you again this morning. I want to pray again, not because Tim's prayer didn't take or wasn't good. It was a great prayer. Um, but it's just helpful for me, I found before I speak, to pray because um, it looks like I'm the one talking, um, but we're actually all gathered together to, to hear God speak to us. Because if all you hear is me, then, um, well, it's, it's not going to last very long and it's not going to help very much. So it uh, helps me to pray before I speak to remind myself and maybe all of us again. So let me, let me pray again, then we'll dive into this stuff. Father, we, um, we come before you this morning to listen to your word. And um, we agree with what scripture says about your word, that your words are, are perfect. They have the power to revive our souls. And we really need that. Some of us... Um, are just tired and weary on the inside. Some of us are in a bit of a stupor at the soul level. There's probably some in this room, our souls are rather dead towards you. Sometimes our soul gets confused and, and we need you to revive us. Almost like you know those shock paddles just put on our soul and clear and shock us back into life. So we ask that you would revive us on the inside this morning as we hear your words. Your words are also radiant, and they give light to our eyes. They, they have the power to shine far into the future and give us guidance step by step. And we, and we need that. Just around the corner of time, we have no idea what's coming, but you do. You see our life unfolding before us, and we, we don't. We have plans, we have ideas, but we don't know. And so we need your word to open up our eyes so that we can, we can see what it is that you want us to do and we can follow your word. Your word uh, is worth more than gold and than much fine gold and a whole lot of money. If someone this morning were to offer us $10,000 just to do something else other than this, we would be foolish to take the money and not do this. Because this, uh, your words, they... they they warn us about the traps that are out there. There's all kinds of ways that we can mess up. There's all kinds of traps that we can fall into. They don't just hurt for a little while, but they can literally uh, bring pain for a lifetime. Without your words, we, we wouldn't see the traps that are hidden. We wouldn't see the, the landmines that are buried. And we just walk through life from one pain to the next. So in, in keeping your word, there's reward. And we, we want your word to show us how to live so that as time goes on, even though life does have pain in it, there's, there's a joy and there's an understanding of the purpose of life that brings us blessing and reward that's far beyond anything else. So Father, we bow our hearts before you this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. By the way, just out of curiosity, does anyone recognize what, what I was praying? What part of the scripture I was praying? Where was that from? I wasn't just making those words up. That's Psalm 19. And I, I say this, this is not my point this morning, but I found it's often hard for people to know what to pray. I mean, we, we have conversations and we talk back and forth with people, but when you talk with God, it's kind of, kind of a one-way conversation, it seems. 
And so I've noticed people really struggle with learning how to pray. And so what's helped me is just to take a passage of Scripture and just pray it. I mean, I, you know, on my own, I kind of run out of things to think about in praying sometimes. And so I, I like to take Psalms are great, but Paul has a bunch of prayers in the New Testament. So if you're struggling with, you know, spending some more time in prayer, I would just pick a psalm and just read through it and then pray it back to God. That'd be a good, good way for you to, to work on prayer. So anyways, that's extra stuff for free. <laughs> The theme we're talking about is there's more to this life. There's more to this life, dot, 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 and you can fill in the blank. There's more to this life than, um, you know, the next test that you're facing in school. There's more to this life than having a boyfriend or girlfriend. There's more to this life than getting married. There's more to this life than graduating from college. There's more to this life than getting your ideal job. There's more to this life than making a six-figure-plus salary. There's more to this life than buying a house. There's more to this life than, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you see people move through life, kind of the one stage and the next. They live for maybe the American dream, a house. They live for their careers. They live for retirement. What I noticed, a, a lot of people my age and below, their entire life is being leveraged for the dream of retirement. And that's, that's pretty much what their life is about if you look at the way they put things together. So you kind of fill in whatever blank it is that people live their life for. And what we're talking about this, this week is that your life is far more than any of those components. And the reason is because of the three words that I mentioned on Tuesday night, and that is God actually wants you. You can see the hand of God come down from heaven and point to you and hear his voice. It would say, I want you. I want you specifically. So we are either... In a relationship with him, we've responded to that, we've been reconciled with him, or we are now his ambassadors, helping other people discover that God is pointing at them and saying the exact same thing that he said to us. So God actually wants us to be his ambassadors. And if you just let those, those words sink in, it, it will change your perspective on yourself and on your future and on your life. But I want to pause before... We look at the, um, the next chapter in 2 Corinthians and, and just talk about what it means briefly to be reconciled to God. Because this is, this is the message that we've been given. If we don't understand the message ourselves, then we're not going to be able to, to respond to it and we're not going to be able to help other people respond to it. So the word reconcile um, has two components to it. One means to agree and the other means to make right. You can think of this in terms of reconciling your checking account. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you actually reconcile your checking account. You may be at a stage of life where someone puts money in and you use your ATM to take money out. But there will be a time in life, if you don't do this already, where it's going to be really important that you reconcile your checking account or you don't get to have one for very long. Uh, so what happens every month, of course, the bank sends you a statement, which is their understanding of how much money you have in the bank. And to reconcile means, first of all, you have to agree with the bank. Let's say you think you have $100 in your account, and the bank says, no, you're overdrawn by $100. Who wins in that argument? Okay? The bank does. Same thing with God. You know, you, we think that we're kind of, you know, we're not perfect. We know we, we're, we have flaws and we sin, but we kind of look around to each other and think, well, you know, I'm not that bad. But when you look at what God has to say, his record you realize that he's been keeping track of all of the things we've done in opposition to him. And we are massively overdrawn. So you first of all have to agree with 
what God says about your life, like you have to agree with what the bank says about your life, kind of have to compare. As I said, what we tend to do is we tend to try to reconcile or justify ourselves by looking at each other. It'd be, be like me getting my bank statement in the mail and calling up a friend and say, how much do you have in the bank? And he says, well, I got a couple thousand dollars. And I think, well, that's about what I have in the bank, so I should be okay. Well, what, what he has in the bank has nothing to do with my relationship with the bank. It's irrelevant, you know, but people do that all the time. No, 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 I'm okay, why? Well, because that guy's about like me, and this guy's, I know he's got less in the bank than me, that guy's much worse than me, but I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. It's just, well, one doesn't have anything to do with the other. So you first, if you're gonna be reconciled with God, you first have to come to an understanding and to agree. And that's a tough thing to do in this culture because people don't like to admit the fact that we are massively morally overdrawn on our relationship with God. But when you read through scripture, when you look at the record and you measure your life up against it, you realize I've got, I've got a massive moral debt, more than I can ever pay. And, and if I could pay it, the problem, of course, is that I keep making withdrawals. And so I'm never going to get up to zero in my account, let alone above the line. So you first have to agree and, and then you have to make it right. You know, let's back to the bank analogy. If I if I'm $100 overdrawn in my account, I can't just call the bank up and say, sorry, I've got to put that money in the account to bring me up to zero. And there's probably some penalties involved, so I've got to probably put more in there. And when it comes to God, that, that, that's the problem we have is that, as I said, we, we keep making withdrawals, even as we're trying to improve. All, all our improvements just mean we make less withdrawals maybe than we did before. But we're still... We're still heading downhill in our account with God. And so the, the gospel, the good news, is basically that God took on a body. His name was Jesus Christ. He lived a morally perfect life. And now he offers his perfect life in exchange for our imperfect life. And that's the only chance we have to be right with God, to be reconciled with God. Now, if Jesus was just another guy... Even if he could pull off a perfect life, which he couldn't. But let's just say some person pulls off a perfect life and says, I'm willing to die for you. Well, at the most, he could only substitute his life for one person because he's just a person. But because Jesus was God in flesh, his capacity to put a deposit in our moral bank account is eternal in nature. So it's available for us. And so this, this is the message that we've been entrusted with. It can be said a bunch of different ways. I've kind of used the bank analogy to describe it. But what's at stake in this is that if we don't get right with God before this life ends, then our, our account is closed with God. I mean, same thing would happen with the bank. I mean, they're not going to keep the account open if, if you don't make it right. They're just going to close the account. You can't do business with them anymore. And that's the way it is with God. If, if we slip into eternity without being reconciled to God through Christ, then we will spend eternity in separation from God. That's the very definition of hell, is isolation from God forever. Now, again, in our culture, that just seems like, well, that's a little bit of an overreaction, isn't it? You know, almost to most people, it thinks that, you know, God must, I thought God was loving. I thought I mean, it sounds like he's a little bit of a hothead. 
You just don't do what he wants and he sends you to hell forever? Sounds like a bit of an overreaction to us. But again, it's because we don't understand the nature of who God is and who we are. The reason we can't spend eternity with God without our sin dealt with is because he's holy. And holiness and sin can't exist in the same place. It's not that God's intolerant. It's not that he's a bit of a hothead. But it's simply because he's holy. You see, you'd have to think of God this way. Um, It's kind of like fire. Oftentimes, Scripture refers to the holiness of God as a consuming fire. Well, we're, we're like wood. So you put wood and fire together. What does fire do to wood? It destroys it. The only reason we could ever spend eternity with God is is because we've been, as the New Testament says, we've been clothed in Christ. You can describe it this way. We've been given a fireproof insulation blanket so we can show up in the presence of God. (laughs) Otherwise, just by the very nature of who he is, we would be consumed in an instant. So if we don't come to understand this reality, this truth, and take on the clothing, the righteousness of Christ by deciding to follow him and accept his offer, then, then we're in separation from God forever. And that, and that can't be rectified. So this is the message. The key verse in 2 Corinthians 5, which 2 Corinthians is our theme, is we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can almost hear the desperation is, Please, please don't slip into the next life without putting the righteousness of Christ on you. So Tuesday night, we first looked at three reasons why we are perfectly suited to be ambassadors of this tremendous message. So let's kind of review them. Um, anyone remember there was three P's? So remember, anyone just shout out which one you remember? Three reasons why we're perfectly suited for this job. Pain, okay? We've experienced pain that gives us the capacity to relate to people and give the comfort and love of God who are facing the same kind of pain that we've seen God's comfort help us through. Okay, what's the second one? Pressure. Pressure. Because... Um, We want people's heads turned in God's direction, not in our direction. God puts us in over our head. And as we handle the pressure with faith and not freaking out, those are the two options, faith or freak out. We handle it with faith, and people get to see God. So God gives us jobs that are beyond our capacity so that he can shine and he can get credit for it. And people can see who he is. The third P is what? Plans. Because we have the capacity to plan, to say, yes, we want to do this, no, we don't want to do this, we have the chance to give God glory whenever God says no to our yes and yes to our no. We get a chance for people to see that there's something bigger going on, there's a bigger plan going on, and we understand, and that's why, again, when our plans fall apart, we may be disappointed, but we're not crushed. So we are perfectly suited in a world full of pain and pressure and messed up plans to be the ambassadors of Christ to people who need to know him. 
So now what we turn to this morning is some instruction about the methods that we are to use in this role of being Christ's ambassadors. The question then is, okay, this is the message. I've described what it means to be reconciled to Christ. So should we, should we maybe buy some airtime, TV time, radio time, broadcast this message about Christ to as many as possible? That, that'd be good. Should we print this up, you know, in, in little tracks of some kind and, and hand this out to people? That, that'd be great. That'd be helpful. Should we just walk up to people and say, be reconciled to Christ? That'd be a little weird. <laughs> But you're welcome to try. Go ahead and do that. But all of these things, even though they're not wrong, they're, they're, they're not the primary method that God has used since the arrival of Jesus to help people come to understand their condition and the offer of Christ. The reason these are not the methods that God has used is because people are not changed fundamentally by these methods. God has used these and he'll continue to use these. But people are influenced most deeply by those who actually love them. And that's the way you are. That's the way I am. If someone cares about me, they have an influence in my life. They don't care about me. They might say something. I'll think, oh, that's good. I'll write that down. That might have a little influence, but nothing like people who really care about me. And so the ideas at this level that we're talking about, the ideas that change people, they travel from life to life or really from heart to heart. It's not just words only. Words are involved. But the delivery is most effective when it comes through someone that actually cares about me. Now, this doesn't mean that you, know, you just need to be nice to people and hope that something will click on the inside and they'll be reconciled to God. No. We still need to be intentional about imploring people to be reconciled to God. But it, it be, it's best occurs, it best occurs in the context of a real relationship. So in the end of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and then chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book to the church in Corinth, gives us a set of three do's and don'ts, relationship do's and don'ts. God wants us to build a relationship. That's, that's how he wants us to relate uh, in, in, as ambassadors. And so he gives us three sets of do's and don'ts in this process. So let me give you the first one now. As you relate to people, choose faith over force. Choose faith over force. I'm going to explain what this means. 2 Corinthians 1, 23-24 describes it this way. Paul says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it's by faith you stand firm. So let me remind you again what's happened in this second letter to the church in Corinth. The first letter, Paul had confronted them on some changes that needed to be made. At the end of that letter, Paul basically said, so I'm going to follow up this letter with a, with a trip. I'm going to show up in, in, in a while after you've read this letter and had a chance to kind of work on these things. And I'm basically, I'm going to check up on your progress. I'm going to back these words up with my presence. But now he's saying that he's decided not to visit them. And he gives this reason in order to spare you, to spare them. Spare them from what? The opportunity to really change. That's what he's saying here. You see, what people do or don't do is determined by what they personally believe can be trusted. As Paul says here, people stand on their faith. We tend to think of faith as being something only related to God. But 
we have faith on all kinds of things. Everybody has faith. For some, their faith is, is money. I mean, that's the primary thing they trust, and that probably would be the predominant foundation on which people's lives are being built in our country, most of the modern world. They, they've actually decided that money is about the most stable foundation you can build a life on. And so they have placed their faith in money. For some, it's, it's family. You know, there's nothing more important than family. And, and no matter what else we have, we, we have family. Now, these are valuable, important things, but they've, they've decided not that these are just a facet of life, but these are, these are the foundation. These are the things I'm going to stand on. Or their careers. People build their entire lives on a, on a career. Or having fun. You know, some people, you know, life is all about living it to the fullest. So I'm just going to build my life on the foundation of just one big fun experience after another. You could, you could add to this list. A Christ follower stands on Christ. Christ defines himself as the rock. And he says, you know, a storm comes. You'll still be standing if you choose me. If you choose any of these other things, it's like building your house on the sand. It, storms are going to wipe that out. Economic downturn and your, your whole foundation is gone. Conflict in family and your whole dream is toast. You know, a shift in the economy and your career is gone. But if you build your life on the foundation of Christ, all kinds of storms can come and you're still standing. Because Christ is the, the rock. He's true. So whenever someone decides to change, it always occurs on the faith level. You may see evidence of change outside, but what really drives that change is they are deciding to shift from, I'm no longer going to trust this, I'm going to trust this. And the result will be seen over time. But you don't see at the very core someone deciding to, I don't think that's a firm foundation anymore. I don't think that that really is worthy of my trust. So I think I'm going to build my life on this. Instead, and you cannot force that decision. We all make that decision on the inside of who we are. You can't force the faith of others. This is why Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith. Faith doesn't grow under pressure. Every person has to decide on their own what they're going to trust. And see, this was Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that if I show up, it's going to bring too much pressure to conform on your hand. I mean, I've sent you this letter. I've said you need to change. And then if I show up and just kind of, well, well, kind of hang around with my presence, my sense is that a bunch of you are going to decide to conform while I'm there. You're going to kind of, you know, raise your act up to this level. And then as soon as I'm gone, you're going to go back to what you really believe in, what your foundation really is. And in that process, it's going to get in the way of you actually deciding for yourself whether you want to build your life on this or not. So Paul's saying, you know what? I've decided I'm, I'm just not going, to, I'm not going to come around because I think my presence will bring too much pressure to bear on your life. And there needs to be some space for you to decide whether or not you believe this to be true and whether or not you're going to do this. Because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Neil says. It doesn't matter what Paul says or Tim says or anyone else. It doesn't matter what they say. What you will do over the course of your life is what you have become convinced about. You will build your life on your faith. You stand on your faith. We all stand on our own two feet. You know, I don't stand on your feet. I stand on my feet. We all stand on faith. And we can't lord it over somebody else. 
And this is, this is a very important concept to grasp as an ambassador of Christ, is you cannot move anyone to faith. You can't. God can use the words that he gives you to say, but it's the person who has to decide to do this. And that's somewhat unwelcome news to us. Because depending on the person, we have more than just a passing interest in them changing. That's why sometimes the quickest way to alter someone's behavior is just to apply external pressure. You see people do this all the time. Not just about becoming followers of Christ, but all kinds of things. They, they try to put pressure and get someone's behavior to change. Now, most of us, of course, at this level, understand that you know, it's not appropriate to physically force someone to do something. So we resort to more acceptable methods of force. You know, we use the pressure of guilt in someone's life or emotional withdrawal. You know, if you don't do this, then I'm going to punish you emotionally. These are just forms of manipulation where we're trying to get people to do things out of some kind of pressure. But the heart is designed by God to be free. What that means is on the inside, we just naturally resist any forced attempt to rule over us. You know, no one is the boss of our faith. We're free. It naturally resists any attempt to rule it. So it may look like someone at some point is bending to the power of your efforts, but as soon as you take the pressure off, they return to their faith. It's kind of like a rubber band. You, put it, you, you pull on it, apply enough pressure, you think, well, look, it's changed. Then you let go, ow. No, it hasn't. It's the exact same size it was before. This is what hearts are like. You, you can put pressure on people and, and you can think, wow, they're, they're really changing. But it's, it's just the pressure. They're conforming. They're not being transformed on the inside because they haven't decided for themselves. So there needs to be an environment in which we give people the freedom to make their own decisions. We don't, we don't you know, decide, well, then I'm not going to talk to you anymore, and I'm going to be upset with you, and I'm going to, all the different tactics. We don't do that. Because we're not the boss of their faith. We don't lord it over people's faith. So then how can you impact someone on a faith level? If you're not the boss, if you can't put any pressure on them, then what is our role exactly as ambassadors? What Paul says is rather than lording over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's how you impact someone on a faith level is you, you start working together with them for their joy. What does that mean? Let me give you an example. A little while ago, I was, well, actually several months ago, maybe it's over a year ago now, I um, was having problems with a hot water heater and talked to some guys that know more about that kind of stuff. And they said, well, you know, what you need to do is you need to drain your hot water heater and you need to flush it out. You've got all kinds of sediment in the bottom. It needs to be flushed out. So like, okay. Now, if I was humble enough, I would have asked them, so how do you do that? <laughs> but one of the great things is with YouTube now, you can figure out how to do everything. So I entered YouTube and watched a couple of YouTube videos on how you flush a hot water heater and figured, hey, looks easy. I'll do that. So I hooked up the garden hose, you know, the water, hot water heaters in the garage, hooked up the garden hose, ran the hose out the front of the garage, out to the uh, street. And my neighbor, Tom, he saw me doing stuff. And whenever I'm working, he always comes over. So what you doing? You know, so he came over. So what are you doing? I said, well, Tom, I'm, I'm flushing my hot water heater. <laughs> and this is what he said. He said, well, good luck with that. And then he said, if, if you need any help, let me know. I said, okay, I'll let you know. 
And as he walked away, I had this, this thought as I analyzed what he said. I said, I thought to myself, seems like he knows something more than I know. <laughs> but for someone to say good luck with that, that means this may be a little bigger deal than I thought it was, you know? And for him to offer help, of course, implied that at some point I might need help. But according to the YouTube videos, it, it, it shouldn't be that big a deal. <laughs> so if I had sense, I would have humbled myself and said, Tom, tell me what you know. But I'm a proud man. We're all proud people. We don't like to humble ourselves and say, could you help me? <laughs> I mean, it just feels weak. So we don't. We resist instruction because of our pride. We have to be humbled by circumstances before we're teachable. Well, about five minutes later, I was teachable. <laughs> I had a leak. I, I couldn't stop. Now, I needed help before that point, but now I was willing to ask for help. Why? What had changed? My joy factor had changed, right? Okay? Before the leak, my joy was not in jeopardy. So I could, I could be proud. But now I had a leaking hot water heater, and, which was a major hit to my joy. I mean, you could graph my joy. It went from, as soon as I saw it leaking and I couldn't stop it, my joy went from here all the way down to here. I wasn't happy at that point. If we have to choose between joy and pride, we will choose joy every time, almost. I mean, there, there are a few people that will go to their grave never asking for help, no matter how horrible their life gets. But most of us, if life gets hard enough and we get sad enough, we'll ask for help. And that's when we can help people. So I went next door and said, Tom, you'll never believe what happened. <laughs> he smiled and said, well, let me help you. I received help. The leak problem was solved and my joy went back up. He worked with me for my joy. It's just a hot water heater, but he, he brought my joy right back up <laughs> by helping me. So what Paul is saying here is, if you want a voice in somebody's life, work with them for their joy. Help them remove the obstacles in life. And then wait for them to be in need of your help. B build a relationship bridge so that when they need help, you're one of the people they ask. You see, the fact is, if, if people, say, build their life on money or whatever else they build their life on, the ground, the foundation they're building their life on is really not that stable. And so it's just a matter of time for that ground to shift and knock them off their feet and leave them on their backs. And when that occurs, their joy graph plummets. And if you've shown yourself to be someone who is willing to partner with them in helping them come up with joy in life, then guess who, who they're going to ask for help when their joy goes down? You've already proven yourself as a joy partner. They're going to come running to you. So you have to partner with people and helping them with all kinds of things, maybe before they're, they're really open to consider Christ. But figure out, now what, 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 is, what can I do to help them? Now, there's some things that they might want you to do that you can't do. This doesn't mean, you know, their joy is your main goal in life. But you, you look at them and you think, boy, I, I think I can help them remove this obstacle. 
I think I can help them with this part of life. I think I can serve them in this way. And when you do that, then you put yourself in the position to be ready to help them with the thing that will bring the deepest joy of all, to be reconciled to God. See, but we're not open for input on a faith level until our joy is threatened. Tom, my neighbor, uh, I invited him to a Christmas Eve service several years ago, and I've been talking to him and trying to, he's just not open at all to God's stuff. I know when he first found out I was a pastor, he's like, oh, great, this guy moved next door to me. The value of the neighborhood just plummeted. We got a pastor in there. So I invited him to come to Christmas Eve a few Christmas Eves ago, and he was working on his truck when I went over and invited him, and he said, well, how do you say this? He said, well, how long are you going to talk? I said, well, Tom, you're in luck. I only talk about 10 minutes on Christmas Eve. And he said, well, I might be able to come then. He showed up. He's never been back. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly why, but he's never been back. And so we've continued to get to know each other, and I've continued to try to figure out how, how can I be a partner with him in the things that, you know, helps him come up with joy. And then recently, Tom had a heart attack. He survived it, but it, I mean, literally it shook his world. Because Tom's a money guy. He's built his life on accumulating wealth. And he's about four years older than me. He's in his upper 50s, and I found out, we were talking about this heart attack, and he said, you know, first of all, I, I, it's just amazing they say that I'm alive. And secondly, the biggest thing that he's struggling with is he said, my bucket list is gone. He had this long bucket list that he'd come up with, basically, which basically was exotic places in the world that he wanted to travel to. And now because of his heart condition, he can't. And so everything he'd built his foundation on, suddenly, and so his joy factor just whew, went like that. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Tom actually scared and shaken. So I thought, well, this is the opportunity. You know, we've lived next door to each other for over 10 years. So I started guiding the conversation towards, you know, how unpredictable life is. And I said, well, Tom, that's, I mean, that, that's why I think out of all the preparation you've made, you, you, it sounds like you haven't really made any preparation for what happens after this life. And Tom, I, I think that's probably the most important thing you need to prepare for. I mean, you've just experienced how fragile this life is. And so I said, Tom, if, I'd love to be able to help you get ready for the next life. And his response was, well, Bevan, I'll let you know. And I thought back, it's just the same way I responded to him about the hot water heater. There was a sense that he knew something that I didn't know, but I was too proud to say, well, Tom, could you tell me? So even with the heart attack, Tom still is not ready. I mean, I pushed, I put, but he's like, I'll, I'll let you know, I'm good. He's not ready for input. Now, I, I could wish, and I do pray, that faith would just suddenly appear in him. But I can't do that. You know, it's, it's like standing, I said. I mean, I, I can't stand for you, and you can't stand for me. We have to stand on our own two feet. Our own faith is what, what we have. But I can work with Tom in his pursuit of joy. So I keep praying that God will give him another chance. Because his joy took a big hit. But not far enough for him to get humble and say, 
Yeah. Tell me about this. So if you're going to be an ambassador for Christ, you need to choose faith over force. Focus on a person's faith, not on trying to push them. Secondly, choose sadness over anger. Sadness over anger. 2 Corinthians 2.4, Paul says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul's saying that when I wrote that first letter to you, then I had to confront you on things. I, I wrote with tears. Why? Because of his, the depth of his love for him. Now, I, honestly, when I read that, I can only think of a few times when I've teared up while I was saying something to somebody or writing something to somebody. I mean, I teared up about a year and a half ago when I was writing something to my brother because, well, he was facing an unbelievably crushing circumstance. His 15-year-old son was diagnosed with bone cancer, and over the course of a year, you know, by the end of that year, he died. It was just devastating. And so as I wrote, I remember this particular email I wrote to him. I mean, I, tears were, were in my eyes for two reasons. My, my heart, number one, my heart was attached to a situation. And this was not just a, a cancer story. This was my nephew. This was my brother. So I, I mean, I really loved them. And the second reason is I longed so much for that situation to change. I wish that it could have been different. And this is the same reason Paul was crying. Out of his deep love for him, I mean, his heart was attached to these people. This wasn't just a, hey, turkeys, straighten up. <laughs> this was, my heart's attached to you guys. And, and, and because of that, I can see if, if this doesn't change, your life is going to be torn apart. Like, cancer would to your body, this is going to ravage your, your life and your future. That's why Paul was crying, out of his deep love and longing to see them change. And this is the way we need to approach people if we're going to be effective ambassadors of Christ. And so often, it's easy for us to get into this mode of, what's wrong with those people? Kind of an anger or frustration that people won't get it and they won't change. The moment we do that, we cease to be effective ambassadors. You see, there's an emotional indicator that lets you know whether or not you're working with someone for their joy or whether you're trying to lord it over their faith. The indicator is this. Are you more sad or angry about them? You see, if someone's not changing and you're more angry than sad about it, that's because you're more focused on how their lack of change will affect you than how it will affect them. When you get angry with someone, even if you don't blow it up and lose it, people can tell if you're just irritated with them. And as soon as you get angry with a person, you've just become probably the last person on planet Earth that they will ever listen to. And when someone's upset with you, what's your natural response? You get defensive. We all get defensive. Anger only raises defenses. Now what tends to happen is your anger is the issue, not whatever the issue is. I mean, I've done this with my wife, you know. There's an issue, there's a problem between us, and then I get angry. Now, now there's two problems between us. The problem 
and my anger. So anger just you know, derails the whole process. Now, I'm not saying that if you walk up to someone that needs to change and just start crying in front of them, that they'll instantly change. I mean, tears are not, you know, pixie dust. They're not magic, you know. What I am saying is that until you care enough to grieve over how someone's sin is tearing their life apart, more than how it's messing with you, you won't really have much of a voice in their future. You'll have very little influence in their lives. So how, how do you get to the sadness rather than the anger? Well, it's the same thing. Paul says you've got to work with them for their joy. Try to figure out what, what is it that I can do to help them. Start serving them. Very practical ways that you can serve them. What do they need and how can I meet that need? We've got some other neighbors that uh, around the corner from us, Ron and Ritva. And Ron, um, well, by his own admission, he absolutely hates Christians. Just cannot stand them. In fact, uh, it's, it's just a huge irony that, he, that I'm probably his closest friend. So it's kind of like, I hate Christians except for my best friend's a pastor. <laughs> That's the way it worked out. So, but anyways, a few years ago when, when we, our church was able to purchase property and we were able to complete construction, you know, he was really fascinated about the whole process and asked me all kinds of questions. So finally when it was done... Um, I could tell he wanted to see the property. But, of course, he, he, he wasn't going to come to any events because he can't stand Christians. And Christians apparently go to churches and stuff. So <laughs> he couldn't be there at the same time. So I said, well, Tom, I'd, I'd be happy to give you a tour. And he was, I could just tell he was, well, I don't, I don't know. And I said, Tom, how about if we pick a time when I know that there's no other Christians on campus? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so I had to provide him with a... Christian free tour of the church. And this is, you know, so Tom, here's where we worship Jesus. You know, this is where people are baptized. This is, you know, not people you can see, of course, but people that show up on occasion. And he just, I mean, this is just the way he is. But he keeps asking questions and he, he has questions about these things. And for me, there's been times where I've just, I mean, he's, he's getting... He's now in his early 60s, and as time goes on, I mean, he's just becoming a crotchety old man. He's getting more and more irritating. And it's very easy for me to say, you know what, he is just a knucklehead. <laughs> and just to write him off. But you know the one thing that God uses to keep my heart more sad for Tom than angry at Tom? And that, this, I'm Ron. I'm getting Tom and Ron. This is Ron. What, what helps me stay sad for him is... I have become tech support for Tom, for um, Ron. I've become tech support for Ron, which is, if you know my lack of technical abilities, you'd see how laughable it is. But the good thing is, is if you're old enough, I can probably help you with some stuff, you know, because I, I know a little bit more than you, you know. So whenever he gets a new piece of technology or something else, then, and it doesn't work, he always calls me up. And so I'm over there helping him with stuff. This has nothing to do with the gospel. But you see... His joy rises and falls on his stupid technology. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help him. I'm going to work with him for his joy. And I've noticed over time, that's, that's softened my heart for him and him for me. I don't know what God will do with this, but I'm working with him for his joy. Because he has, he has no idea what's coming. No idea. 
So choose sadness over anger. If you find yourself angry at somebody, ask God to break your heart for them. Number three, choose forgiveness over bitterness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts a man involved in sexual sin in the church. That's one of the things Paul had to confront. You know, there was this guy that was out of bounds sexually in weird ways. Paul confronted them and said, hey, 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 this is not, you know, this is not allowed in the church of Christ. So he actually had the church, you know, throw the guy out of the church. He said, the purpose of this is so the person might come to his senses and, and repent and change and come back to me. And that's actually what happened. The guy comes to his senses. He asks for forgiveness of God. And then the church, he repents. So now in the second letter, Paul points out why it's so important to forgive this man. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Notice how many times the word forgive is crammed in there. Let me just look at this. Forgive, forgive, forgiven, forgive, forgive. Oh, so we're supposed to forgive? <laughs> yes, forgive. Why? Paul says, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we're not unaware of his schemes. We, we know his playbook. This is one of his favorite plays. What is the, what's his scheme? What's, what's he up to? What Paul is saying here is if, if you don't forgive this individual who has repented, what's going to happen, and you hang on to your bitterness over what this guy did, what's going to happen is the focus is going to shift from this man's relationship to God, and it's going to shift to the conflict between you and him. And whenever that occurs, Satan's going to say, yes, worked again. You see, Satan knows that we will one day stand before God in the end. And at that point, all that will really matter is the condition of our relationship with him. So the scheme of the enemy is to never get us to figure that out or distract us enough from that fact so we never address it. And one of the top ways he does this is get us in relational conflict. Because when we're upset with someone else and they're upset with us, the last thing we're thinking about is, well, how, how are things between God and us? We're, we're angry about this. We're bitter about this. And so relational conflict, I think of it, it's, it's, like, it's like a smokescreen on the battlefield for the souls of people. You know, think of a battle analogy. I mean, one of the classic ways that you camouflage um, advancing artillery or tanks or troops is with smoke screens. I mean, a smoke screen is simply you pump smoke onto the battlefield, and so the enemy can't see where the real enemy is. Just a big thing of smoke. In the battle for our soul, conflict, relational conflict, is smoke. It, it hides the real issues of our own sin and our relationship with God. Because when two people fight, they generate all kinds of emotional smoke. And all they can see is the one they're upset with. They can't see God. God who? So if Satan can make things personal between two people, when the real problem is, in fact, between them and God, well, mission accomplished. So Satan is constantly inciting us to fight and hold on to our bitterness with other people. I mean, I, I think it's one of his number one schemes. So Paul says, forgive. 
in order that Satan might not outwit us. And we see too late that this was all just smoke. All this relational conflict was just smoke on the battlefield of what's really important. Forgiveness is the only thing with the power to blow, the, blow the way, away the smoke of bitterness that the enemy just keeps pumping on the battlefield of life. You know, the moment this life is over, my guess is we won't even be able to remember some of the people that we were upset with. I, I've seen this happen just in my own life. There, you know, I've pastored church long enough and I've had enough people upset with me <laughs> to, you know, while this happened just recently, I, my wife and I were heading to the movies one evening and all of a sudden we looked up and here's a guy that I was like, I know that guy. Who is that guy? And it turned out to be one of the guys seven years ago that was just awful to me. It was like, I had to think about his name. But back then it was like, you know, almost all I could think about was his name. So just think when we stand before God, do you think all the relational conflicts are going to even be on our brain? No. What's going to matter is this right here. Every time we forgive, we reduce the chance that we will be the one who distracts someone from God. Every time we hold on to bitterness, we add smoke to the field of battle. And we can potentially be a part of someone being distracted from their relationship with God. So get at the fan of forgiveness. Blow the smoke of bitterness away. And I'm just telling you, you'll have to do this your entire life. People will wrong you. They will hurt you. And again and again, you, know, you need to try to reconcile with them. But if they won't ask for forgiveness, then you still have to let it go. You can't allow that wrong turn into bitterness. Because it will turn you away from being an ambassador of Christ to being someone who's trying to get everyone to behave. And it will just pump smoke onto the real issues of life. So 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 is a summary then of, of what it says here about being an ambassador of Christ and the importance of building these relationships in this way. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? What this is saying is that if you've decided to follow Christ, you've joined in the greatest parade or procession throughout all of eternity. Right now, we are on the leading edge of time. There, there are men and women who have gone before us, and their time on the stage is now gone, but the procession marches on. There are people behind us that will take our place once we're gone. This is, this is something bigger than just us. This is more than just this life. We are part of, of an eternal march that goes on throughout time. And the purpose of this parade is to give those watching, while we walk across this stage, which is this life, and the spotlight shines on us, the purpose is to give those watching a clear chance to decide whether or not they want to join in the parade or not. And the way it works is we who are walking across this stage, we give off an aroma. Not because we haven't taken showers. 
but because of something on the inside of who we are because we now follow Christ. You can't smell this aroma with your nose, but, but those who come in contact with people in this procession, in this parade, they get a sense, they get a whiff of something different. They can sense it. For some, that aroma draws them out of the stands and onto the stage, and they join the procession. For others, you know, it smells awful to them. And they, they push further back. We can't do anything about how people respond. Our responsibility is to smell like Christ so that their response will be honest, based on truth. So what, what is that smell like? Well, again, these three things. We work with people for their joy. We actually love people. We really care. And we show that practically. We help them come up with the things that bring joy to their life. And whenever they, they do us wrong, it may take us a while, but we eventually get to the point where we are more sad about what this means in their life, in their future, than we are angry about it, its, its impact on our life. And then we forgive rather than hold on to the wrong that's been done to us. Nobody does this stuff. This is not natural. So when you do this and you march across this stage, the people that are close to you, they, they notice this stuff. And you become an ambassador, not just with a message, but with a smell. The aroma of Christ. And God uses that to shift people's faith from whatever sinking sand they're building it on to the rock itself. And as Paul says at the end of this, <laughs> who's equal to such a task? I mean, which one of us is qualified for this? The answer is nobody. What Paul is really saying here is, can you believe that we're in this parade? I mean, this is not the parade of the moral elite. This is the parade of people who cannot believe that they've been made right with God in Christ. This is the people who we don't deserve this. We didn't get into this parade because of our amazingness. But again, who better to give off the aroma of Christ than those who have desperately needed what he offers to be reconciled with God? So I want to pause before I close in prayer. I want to give you just a little time to go back over these three. And what I'd like you to do, is we'll just take a few minutes to do this, is I want you to to take a little time. You might need to take more time later, so feel free to do that. But I want you to ask God if there's a name that he wants you to put next to each one of these three. Now, it may be the same person. But think through each of these. Now, the first point, put down a name of someone that you can work with for their joy. Just ask God, is there someone that you want me to come alongside and partner with them in their lifelong journey of joy? Who would that be? Secondly, is there someone that your heart needs to break for? You know, someone right now that you're more irritated than sad. Put, put down a name there. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Someone that you're playing into the scheme of the enemy because you're just holding on to this and you're pumping the smoke of bitterness onto the battlefield of life. So just take a moment and ask God, is there a name that I need to
put next to each of these, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we bring these names before you and we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit you would open their eyes. You would push away all of the distractions and all the the smoke screens that the enemy is trying to get them to live their life for and that they would see them standing before you and realize that they have no answer. Father, we would love to see these people come to faith in you. But we don't have the power to bring that about. Only you can change a heart. But you've given us this role as ambassadors. And it's not just words, although words are a part of it. But it's also this aroma. We're not equal to this task. We, we don't have the ability to forgive in ourselves. We don't have the ability to partner with people for their own joy. We'd rather they partner with us for our joy. It's so easy for us to be upset with people rather than sad. So we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to shift our hearts towards these individuals so that we can play our part and and their eternities can be changed. Thank you for reconciling us, for putting us in this parade. This is not a parade for show. This is a parade that changes people. So in this brief time where we march across the stage of of time and the spotlight shines, help us to be your ambassadors. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.